0: Now most people think of a, a conscience as something like a shoulder angel, kind of like what you see on the slide up and maybe there's the good angel whispering in one ear, and then the, the demonic uh, whispering in the other and uh, tempting to do wrong. That's what sometimes we joke about a conscience, but the conscience is unique. It is a capacity to be sensitive to right and wrong, and it defines us as what it means to be human. Now, the conscience, as we represent the image of God, we, we project in this world what God is like, is an example of the moral quality that we have received from God. Uh, it reflects His moral image, and God is moral, and we, He makes judgments about right and wrong, We also make judgments about right and wrong. Now, the conscience sometimes feels very independent inside of ourselves. It's kind of remarkable that there is this aspect, this part of our makeup, our psychology, that we really care about what our conscience says about who we are. And so, in some ways, it feels very independent, But ultimately, the conscience is a very priceless gift that God gives to every one of His His created human beings, because it's a lot like a sense. Like we have the five senses, but the conscience is like another kind of sense that warns you that you might be in danger. Like touch, you put your hand close to a, a, a hot element on a stove, you're instantly that sense warns you that you're going to get yourself hurt. The conscience is very much like that. Now, Scripture says in Romans chapter 14, blessed is the one who has no reason to pass judgment upon himself for what he approves. That is a great description of a conscience that's at peace. Uh, Benjamin Franklin, I think, was right on the money when he said that a, a a good conscience is like a continual Christmas. It's, it's bringing you real joy. Uh, uh, John MacArthur, a pastor in, on the West Coast, said that the conscience may be the most underappreciated and least understood attribute of humanity. Psychology is usually less concerned with understanding the conscience than they are with the attempt to silence it. Now, for the conscience to operate properly, it needs a good dose of truth. Truth is necessary for the conscience to work properly. And the conscience is a very funny thing because you can suppress the truth and find that your conscience is permitting you to do wickedness, things that you at other times had never thought you would do. Now, our culture, the American culture, students of the last 60 to 80 years have have understood this truth. As a society, we have had a kind of collective consciousness that has been suppressing the truth about human sexuality. By actively teaching that human sex is a simple transaction between two consenting adults, it has caused people not to feel a sense of shame for engaging in what we would call fornication. Fornication is sexual promiscuity. Now, it's really nothing. Maybe you heard it in the news this week. I, I, this popped off on the radar for me as a, a U.S. congresswoman from South Carolina participating in a prayer breakfast joked about refusing intimacy with her fiancé that morning so that she could arrive on time to a prayer breakfast. Now, that ought to strike you as being quite hypocritical, but she thought nothing of it, and everyone at the breakfast just laughed along with her joke. But that is symptomatic of the culture in which we're living in, and suppressing the conscience starts with a denial of the truth. The truth is In this instance, human sexuality, from the beginning God created man and woman to exist in a marriage relationship, and that's the context in which sexuality is supposed to be enjoyed. Now last Sunday we had considered how in Jesus' hometown people became offended at Jesus. They saw the truth. They didn't want to accept the truth, they wanted an alternative, and then they became offended at Jesus and they got angry. They got disgusted with His claim that He was the Son of God. They didn't want to accept Jesus as the Messiah, as He was demonstrating, and that refusal led to a hardness of heart. And like the hard soil in the parable, the truth was rejected and anger and ingratitude arose and their hearts became hard as concrete, and the truth bounced off, and then the birds came in and swept away the truth." Now in this next response that we're looking at, we're going to spend a little time here thinking about how Herod had received truth, and he, like, his, like the hometown of Jesus, he was, he was refusing to accept the truth. But he also demonstrates that he had been in a pattern of suppressing his conscience by denying the truth over time, and it led to a bad conscience. Now, as we read this account, we we see first a little in verses 1 and 2, just a, a simple explanation of Herod surprised about what he hears about Jesus. And it demonstrates that he has a bad conscience. And then in the following verses, 3 to, the, to verse 12, we hear the backstory, kind of like a flashback to give explanation for why Herod had this misunderstanding about who Jesus was. So, verse 1 and 2, we read that at that time, Herod the Tetrarch had heard about the fame of Jesus. And he said to his servants… This is John the Baptist. He's been raised from the dead. That is why these miraculous powers are at work in him. Herod. This is not the same Herod that was around when Jesus was born. That was Herod the Great. He, Herod the Great was so great that all of his family members who came after him wanted to make, lay claim to his royal title, and so his name became like uh, a, a house of Windsor or, or kind of a, a dynastic name that kind of carried from generation to generation. And during Jesus' adulthood, this Herod, whose name was Antipas, governed a region of Galilee and Perea. And I've, if you can see this little map on the wall, you can see there's two red areas. Red, the northern red area is the area of Galilee. And across the Jordan River on the east side, there is the area of Perea. That's where John the Baptist had been baptizing down uh, down in the southern region. Jesus' ministry was occurring in the north region, in that upper red area. And it's likely that hearing of Jesus' success and the crowds that he was that were coming towards him, he would have been reminded of the kinds of crowds that had been flocking to hear John at the Jordan River. And to be baptized by him." Now, this also probably created alarm bells for Herod because if crowds gather, there may be riots. There may be elements of civil unrest. And he, had a tenuous, he held a tenuous position with the Roman government, and he had to make decisions. But he had a greater problem than merely crowd control. His greater problem, actually, is his bad conscience. And that led him towards superstition notice what he hears about jesus he hears that jesus is doing miracles and wonders in verse 2 and he immediately associates with the paranormal as this is john who he had killed now risen again and he's walking around as if he were like a ghost embodying a body, and and, and going about doing all kinds of miracles. This resurrected John, in his mind, was haunting him, and it is a good picture of his, his conscience being distorted and broken and bad. Now the Scripture is very clear about the demonic world, however, the more a society downplays truth the more aggressive the demonic world becomes. And when truth about God is is denied, there is a reality, there is a vacuum that is created and in enters the demonic world seeking to stoke fears and worry people. And as more people turn down the reality that they have a created soul made in the image of God, Satan comes in seeking to sift. What's really remarkable is that we have been created with a soul that instinctively believes and knows that there is spiritual activity out there. When we deny the truth about God who creates us, our consciences get skewed and we start to look for alternatives to justify the experiences that we see around us. Herod had a bad conscience And he was misreading the facts that were in front of him. Herod ought to have felt the weight of his own conscience for killing John unjustly. He ought to have moved him to repent and to turn to God for the forgiveness of his sin. But instead, because his conscience is not functioning properly, and he was in the habit of suppressing the truth, he frames the world wrongly and he creates a narrative about what he sees. Now, let's think a little bit about how his bad conscience came about. Now, we're going to see a progressive movement here in which, first of all, he, he deliberately suppresses the truth. Look at verse 3 and 4. Verse 3, it says, "...for Herod had seized John and bound him and put him in prison for the sake of Herodias, his brother's wife, because John had been saying to him, it's not lawful for you to have her. Now, it is very customary for kings in that day to have a courtroom in which they had advisors who would assemble before them and to give them advice on how to make decisions. It's very, it's very much similar to like an Oval Office discussion that we would hear about in which Uh, political advisors come in and try to persuade the president on different courses of action, and it is traditional within the presidential sphere of influence to have a spiritual advisor. Now, John was a unique spiritual advisor. He was not afraid to tell the king what he needed to hear, not what he wanted to hear. John stepped forward. He was particularly disagreeable to Herod He was unwelcomed. He didn't really want, Herod didn't really want to hear what John had to say. And in that moment of opportunity, he doesn't shirk back. He steps forward boldly and says, King, it's unlawful for you to have this woman in your bed. It is unacceptable to the king of heaven that you would go about in this direction. And so John boldly says, It's not lawful for you to have her. Now, what we're not familiar with, like, the, the backstory here, but what is happening is she, Herodias, had been the wife of his brother, Philip. Now, Philip had a different mother than Antipas, but Herod the Great was the father of both Antipas and also of Philip. Herod the Great had had relations with the famous woman of Egypt whose name was Cleopatra. And out of that relationship, uh, Philip was born. Now, Antipas himself was married to a daughter of the region of Petra to the south. He divorced his wife and took Philip's wife as his own. He did it as a power play. Now, she was very welcome to jump into another room and to take on another man. Uh, She came very willingly, but nevertheless, she was never legally divorced. And for both of them, John is condemning their sexual immorality. It was a combination of incest and also adultery. We really remarkably see the significance of of God's man stepping in and speaking boldly the truth when it needs to be heard. Uh, you see in John the kind of quality that's necessary with those who have to deal with princes. I tell you, it's not an easy thing to stand before someone with power and tell them what they need to hear and not what they want to hear. Flattery is much more successful than speaking truth. And John, in spite of The knowing that he could lose his own head or be he spoke boldly. And yet, despite despite hearing John's words, Herod canceled John. He censored him. He placed him, excuse me, in prison. And when that's what happens. When people don't want to hear the truth, they take steps to suppress the truth. And this is a pattern which how the, the human heart hardens. And we saw this again in Jesus' hometown. They clearly saw. Jesus is doing all of these amazing works. It's undeniable what, who Jesus is. And yet they wanted an alternative, and then they became offended at Him. And here Herod seizes John, binds him, and puts him in prison in the same way. Truth is observed, alternative desired, offense taken, And now where does this leave Herod if he suppresses the truth? Let's look at verse 5 and we see that his decision-making process, because he doesn't have the truth, is being made now by feeling. Verse 5 says, and though he wanted to put John to death, he feared the people because they held him to be a prophet. Herod had no anchor. He's like a boat that's just floating in a storm, caught between wave and wave. He wanted to kill, but he was restrained from doing it because of the political dynamics by which he was governing. And his own depraved desires become the catalyst for his decision-making. I don't know if you realize that The depravity of our human heart is greater than we might actually imagine. We are not, we might look at someone like Herod and say, if I were in your shoes, I would be doing something different. I recently had come across a sermon written in 1766 in my historical research this sermon, written in 1766, was the very first sermon of a young man who was aspiring to preach. And I don't know about you, I, I, I had my first sermon once upon a time. My first sermon was from Colossians chapter 1, or Colossians chapter 3, verses 1 to 4, and it had a very upward, lifting, uh, a view of God type of sermon. This sermon was from 2 Peter 2.22, in which we read this, What the true proverb says has happened to them, that is, false professors. The the dog returns to its own vomit, and the sow, after being washed herself, returns to the wallow in the mire. That's quite a first sermon text, Uh, uh, very inspiring, right? But it's actually filled with colorful images about human character. And the wisdom that this 21-year-old had when he recognized that the human heart wants to go back to old patterns, and he made this observation in his sermon. He said this, we are we are often prevented from doing the worst things in life because of external circumstances. We often want in our hearts to go after wickedness, but we are often restrained by external impediments, just like Herod. Herod wanted to kill John, but he was held back not because he was a holy man, but because there was external pressure keeping him from fulfilling his heart's desires. And this is a a great illustration, I believe, because it illustrates what the human conscience is capable of suppressing, and how badly we can behave when we suppress it. We become governed by feeling and fear. What governs us? What limits us? You know, we often reflect upon how corrupt our government systems are, and the people at the helm of the boat, right? We we often will look at congressmen and senators, and we like, whoa, how did they become so corrupt? Well, the reality is is that when you hold all the power and there's no one there to check and give you balances, those impediments are removed. Those restraints are no longer there. We will run in the direction that our hearts want us to go in. Wicked governors like Herod are simply a reflection of people, they govern. It's just that they have more power than you do. They can get away with it, and you might not be able to get away with it. And that speaks to how necessary we need to guard our hearts and our consciences and not allow our hearts to suppress the truth, because we don't want to be in a position where one day no one's looking and we go about and satisfy whatever our hearts are desiring because we think that somehow we will get away with it. We have to deal with the root cause in our heart and remove that wickedness and respond well to the truth. So, Herod here, he's governed by his feelings. He doesn't have truth to govern him. He's governed by feelings, and he's making decisions by how, how he feels today or what's the political mood of the era that I'm in right now. He's not governed by principle. And so, he has a gravitation towards immoral pleasures, things that would bring him pleasure, feelings and pleasure, but those of immoral nature. Verse 6 to 8, we see this, this progressive step. It says, "'But when Herod's birthday came, the daughter of Herodias danced before the company and pleased Herod, so that he promised with an oath to give her whatever she might ask, and prompted by her mother, she said, give me the head of John the Baptist on a platter." Now it's, been a, it's an ancient custom to, to have birthday parties. Uh, we moderns are not uh, the first to do this sort of thing. And having an occasion of joy is not wrong in of itself. Uh, every day, every year that we have a birthday, it's an opportunity to give thanks to God for what He's doing in our hearts and lives. And a birthday ought to be a sacred uh, moment in which we reflect upon God's grace in our lives. But often, as is the case, when parties take place, moderation can often go out the window. And all kinds, particularly in a king's court, all kinds of debauchery can take place. As you try to uh, express just how much power and how much liberty you have. Uh, it was well known in history that uh, Antipas, uh, when he gave a party, he, he was like, you wanted to be at that party because he was the host with the most. He was the one who, who made like the headlines, so to speak. And uh, in his party, there was no bounds that were, that were not crossed. Uh, in Queen Esther's day, It was highly inappropriate for a woman, particularly even a married woman, to dance in front of men like this. And you might remember the story of Queen Esther in which she declined, and she said, I'm not doing that. She spoke the truth and she suffered for it. But times had changed since Esther's day, and here Herodias, who knew how to rise to power, had no qualms about letting her own daughter dance before men. She was a marriageable woman, and it was a high act of immorality to be dancing like that. One commentator I I read this week said this, that it was a shameful display of the impotence of a strumpet. I had to look up that word, strumpet. I might let you look it up. When truth is no longer the bedrock of decision-making, then that which feels right will be right. You know the old country song? How can this be wrong when it feels so right? That message has been set to old classic rock. It's been set in many different ways. And here, What a shameful display of drunkenness that led to the promise of whatever she would ask for, she would receive. And it was very likely that Herodias expected that this would occur. In the book of Mark, a parallel presentation of this text, Mark makes the claim that Herodias laid in wait for this opportunity. And she expected this as much as one who had all this power and yet so little morality, the opportunity would present itself. And so, we have here Herod's gravitation because he, he, has, he has refused the truth throughout the years. His conscience is, is not guiding him properly. He has a gravitation towards de- decision-making on feelings, and now he's moving really towards the immoral pleasures that's governing his decision-making. And then we have a complete collapse. In verse 9 to 11, we see how this is a total corruption of his moral integrity. Verse 9, we read, "Um, and the king, when he heard it, was sorry, and it's debatable why he was sorry, but because of his oaths and his guests, he commanded it to be given. He sent, had John beheaded in the prison, and his head was brought on a platter and given to the girl, and she brought it to her mother, and the disciples came and took the body and buried it." Antipas played a stupid game and he got a stupid prize. He was undone by his own sexuality, and he was overwhelmed by the sensual displays in front of him. But he had already gone this way, he had already seduced his own brother's wife, and amid all of this pleasure at the party, comes along, he's taken again by another pleasurable woman, and it's his own relation. And this time the dancing daughter of his ill-gotten wife plunges him into excess again. He makes this extravagant promise in front of everyone. And what does it do? It results in the death of the greatest prophet who ever lived. Think about that. Jesus had earlier said, this is the greatest prophet who ever lived. How could you dare take his life? This is incredible moral corruption. He was so inundated by the sensual that he had no respect for John's word. And so, Satan comes in, the birds come in, and they swoop out the truth. And the birds take on the look of sexual immorality, and it sweeps up all of this good seed and takes it away. Man, he should have done the honorable thing. But how could he? He's been dishonorable his whole life. He's been in a habit of doing the dishonorable. And so, instead of incurring shame, he chooses instead and promises foolishly. He's pushed around. He's making decisions based upon feeling, and he's choosing to proceed with his folly. And so, the executioner is summoned, hey, go down to the kitchen, get get the silver platter, and John's head is procured to, and the deed was done. Now remember how the heart hardens. When the truth is there in front of us, we're at a very critical moment in which we have a choice to make. Do we receive the truth? Or do we look away and try to find an alternative way? Do we look for the broad way that leads to destruction? Or do we look for the narrow way? Do we take the truth? Herodias' love of power and pleasure is so twisted that she herself has ordered her own revenge on a plate. Both man and woman here have such disregard for God's Word that their conscience become warped, and so they find satisfaction in the death of a holy man. Their integrity was compromised because they would not listen to the truth, and their hard hearts became harder, and their conscience became worse and worse it's hard to preach a sermon that has a largely negative projection. It is hard. But I want to try to turn the corner here at the end and encourage us, don't do what Herod did. Blessed are those who sow their conscience with truth. When the seeds of truth fall, don't Become stubborn and obstinate to it. Don't look for alternatives because the end is your conscience is going to become seared. It's going to become broken. And you'll be permitting yourself to do all kinds of things. Instead, you will find flourishing, you will find hope, and you will find joy in following the truth. Blessed are those who sow their conscience with truth. No, that's not in the Bible, but I'm using Bible language. I think that this is clear in the teachings of Jesus, that if we genuinely accept the truth that we will flourish, the conscience ought not to be silenced. How do we avoid callousing our conscience? The way to keep the conscience tender is to the utmost to resist sin, embracing the truth. And the pathway that leads to the most satisfaction in life in this world is the possession of a good conscience. Someone once said that a good conscience is the best pillow. It's the best pillow, and I would agree with that. And I would encourage you to not allow your Heart to become hardened. God knows that it's in your best interest, and that's why He proclaims before you the truth of His Word, not to hurt you but to help you. Those who harden their hearts will find that they are not flourishing in life. Justice will catch up eventually. Life will get harder and, ultimately. After this life passes, there is a judgment that does come. But there is also reward for those who follow the truths of Jesus Christ. You are promised eternal joy in heaven, blessedness and flourishing. And so I would encourage you to examine your heart, where have I been tempted to resist the truth? Train your conscience to alarm you and to to speak to you and say, you ought to be careful about not responding to the truth. When you have the conscience that's properly trained, it will lead you to a place of blessing. Let's pray.